I'm Kim Grinnells of Dogman.com with Chris Fetter, Scott Eklund. Hopefully we won't be hearing too much of that today down at Research Stadium in Corvallis, Oregon, where Washington, Washington, number five, Washington, is Oregon State 10 or 11? 11. Number 11 ranked Oregon State down at Research Stadium, 430 kickoff. Hey, guys, when that game got announced at 430, that's another one that kind of surprised the second week in a row. I thought for sure that was going to be a 7 or 730 game. Is that what you guys anticipated? No, I, I thought 430. I thought it would be picked up by one of the major networks. I, I, I thought there was no way that was getting in late if Washington and Oregon State were were winning. Well, plus yeah. with all with all the talk of game day potentially going to Corvallis too, that seemed to, to indicate, or at least nod in the general direction of an earlier start time. But then it was weird because they announced the start time, and then they announced yeah. that ESPN Game Day is going to to James Madison. Well, I don't. I don't think there was a lot of talk of game day going there. I think it was more talk of game day not going there is what it seemed like to me. Well, once the call was made, 100%. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, I don't know, James Madison. I guess it's a great story, but is that, is that, are they going to have an impact on the college football playoff? I, 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 I must have missed that memo. Yeah. Again, 4.30 kickoff uh, weather this afternoon. Expected to be windy, expected to be rain, expected to be the alder smoke from the wood stoves creeping in as as soon as the sun goes down. But uh, Reeser Stadium, it's going to be the last time that we're going to be there for quite a while. And um, it's going to be interesting because I haven't seen it since the remodel was finished. Last time we were there, it was about halfway finished. And Chris, one of the interesting things about Reeser Stadium kind of has in common with what goes on over in Pullman is um, when you count the locker rooms for the teams, there's in the corner of an end zone, there's this large walkway up a hill. And then you get outside the stadium and you actually go through the fan base into another building. So it's kind of similar to what Washington State does. When you walk out that tunnel at Washington State, you're basically running through the crowd. I don't know if you were with me that Washington State game and who the player was, but they had the fans kind of roped off and some fan was just kind of mouthing off. And one of the offensive linemen stuck out his arm as he was running by and just clobbered a wazoo fan, which was kind of funny, but we get kind of the same thing at Oregon state. I'm sure you remember that. Well, yeah, no, I, I remember. I mean, you basically have to go up and out of the stadium and go kind of towards the Gill Coliseum, the basketball stadium or basketball arena. And, um, yeah, I mean, that's where you get some of the famous videos, like the No Natty video for the, you know, Civil War back in the day and all that. And, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's a very, very unique atmosphere, and it's I think it's definitely going to be super, super crazy today because it's, again, the renovation and all the other things that are piling onto it that you just said, Kim, in terms of the last game between these yeah. two teams in a long time and, and last Pac-12 game at home. For the for the Beaver fans, so yeah. Do you think just, Do you think the No Natty guy is going to be there on the walkway? I think he's still there. Probably, <laughs> he probably can't. He's probably been camped out since, waiting for waiting for the opportunity. You know, the opportunity, and not not obviously, he's he's going to have to wait a whole another year before even. And here's the thing: I know you talked to Angie Machado from Beaver Blitz this week yeah. about the potential for Oregon and Oregon State playing, and they're kind of in the same boat in terms of what we're thinking about with the Apple Cup and. She's like, no, I don't think that game's going to be happening at all. The Oregon Oregon State game, which I thought was kind of interesting. Well, Scott, why doesn't anybody want to play Oregon? <laughs> uh, I don't think it's that any nobody wants to play Oregon. I just think they don't like them. So, well, I think yeah. the other thing is too is that are you going to dedicate one of your non-conference games to basically going up and down the I five corridor? Now they may. I mean, it may. It, it's an easy. It's a super easy game for them to play. If they want to do that and keep that going, that's fine. But what you're saying is you, you're you're just eliminating a non-conference game, and you're potentially having that be like your A game if you use the, like the ABC non-conference scheduling method that most try to use to try to help their 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 scheduling when it comes to you know the style points and and everything else. I mean that's if if Oregon or if Oregon State continues their trajectory, guys with Jonathan Smith doing what he's doing and he doesn't get lured to some of these other places that people are talking about, he could build something really, really big there. And now all of a sudden that Oregon, Oregon state game becomes super massive. If in fact they decide to keep it going. 
Well, it's interesting. I talked to somebody who's pretty well connected to everything. And when you talk about Oregon State and Oregon and Washington and Washington State, they told me that the reason that the game will be the Apple Cup will be played and it will be played in Seattle is strictly comes down to finances. Um, they're telling me that it's possible that, you know, Washington State needs the payday and playing in Seattle could be a bigger payday than Washington playing in Pullman. I don't know what those numbers would be, but I thought that was kind of an interesting point because at the end of the day, Washington State needs the money. And I'm sure Oregon State does, too, as well with their big, big stadium remodel that they put in down there. So I'm kind of excited to see that today because I haven't seen it. So well, they are, they're two very unique situations, right? Yeah. Even though everyone on the outside just looks at them as the in-state rivals, longtime rivalry, losing them. Oh, what a shame. Sad emoji face and all that stuff. That's fine. But what people don't understand is, at least for the Washington rivalry, playing in Seattle for Washington State is a huge recruiting win. Yeah. The, the money is the biggest thing. We all agree the money is the biggest thing. But for them to get a game in Seattle, I-5 corridor, to be able to showcase what they're doing, it's a huge recruiting win for them. Huge. And why they wouldn't want to do that every year is beyond me. Because they're going to get more money out of that game than they would you know, because they're never going to get a game of that magnitude and stature in Pullman. Let's just be let's put all the cards out on the table right now. That's never going to happen, especially if they don't have a conference that they're affiliated with right now. Well, just, they're, the just gonna, they're alumni in Seattle. They're, they're alumni in Seattle. That thing. Well, they're just they're going to have to patchwork that thing. That's fine. Yeah. But at least with Oregon, Oregon State, it's it's still going to stay a true home and home deal if they decide to continue to do what they're doing because they don't have you're not going to play the game in portland guys right you're not going to play the game anywhere else you're going to have one game in eugene one game in corvallis and it's going to bounce back and forth because that's not only the way it's been but you have to because there is no other way logistically that they could do it again it's the same thing if that game's going to be played in corvallis the uh Oregon State's going to need to write a check to Oregon that's big enough to compensate for that. But I don't think Oregon's going to want to go to Corvallis. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. So um, just moving on, the uh, big thing this week was a lot of people have been looking at that top six ranking and taking a look at Washington again at number five, Oregon at number six, Florida State remains at number four. And a lot of talk that this is a game where if Washington wins, this is the game where they could actually move up into that number four slot. Yeah, it, it really does. And, I mean, I don't see why they wouldn't. They're playing a top ten team. Uh, Florida State is playing – they're playing some also – right? like South, South Alabama. Alabama. Yeah, that's what it North was. North Alabama? Yeah. South uh, Alabama? Yeah, yeah. Whoever directional Alabama team? Yeah, so, you know – if Washington beats a number 11 team in the country on the road and let's say they even just, you know, they squeak by by us by, you know, three, seven points, you know, one score game, whatever it is, that's going to be anything that's going to be better than anything that Florida State is able to put up, even if they go 63, nothing over whoever they play because they're not playing anybody this weekend. So, you know, I, I think for Washington, getting this win um, puts them in the play. Look. It doesn't really matter what's happening right now anyway. Whoever wins, if Washington wins out, Oregon wins out. If they, if Oregon wins today, Oregon wins next week against Oregon State at home. They're going to be playing them at home. If Washington and Oregon are facing off as the number five, number six team in the country, whoever wins that game is going to the playoff, period. There, there's just There's just no – if ands or buts about it, because Michigan and Ohio State are going to knock each other off and um, Alabama and uh, Georgia are going to knock each other off. Florida State probably isn't going to get knocked off by anybody, so they're probably going to be in the mix. But, I mean, whoever wins that game between Washington and Oregon, if that's how things uh, play out in the Pac-12 title game, they're going to the playoff. It's funny because a year from now, if we're looking at the same scenarios, it really wouldn't matter because Washington would be in. It would just be a matter of seeding and possible first round buy. Yeah, I, it just and and this is the scenario that has that has it hasn't kept me up at nights, guys, but it has it has certainly kept my mind kind of going like sixty. So lay this out. Let's say Alabama beats uh, an undefeated Georgia 
in the SEC championship game, right? So they end up with both one losses, but Alabama wins the championship. Florida State wins out. Texas wins out. Uh, Ohio State beats Michigan, but Michigan beats them in the title game. Or the, actually, they can't do, can they? Because they, they would be in the East. So let's say whoever wins of the Ohio State-Michigan game goes, but then they lose in the Big Ten, uh, Big Ten championship game to whatever West team that they trot out, Iowa or whoever. And then let's say Washington loses to a one-loss Oregon team. So you've got a one-loss Washington team, a one-loss Oregon team, a one-loss Georgia team, a one-loss Alabama team, a one-loss Ohio State team, an undefeated Florida State team, and a one-loss Texas team. Who goes in? Yeah, I stopped paying attention. Yeah. Well, I think we know. <laughs> I, mean, sure. I hate rabbit. Sure I hate rabbit holes. Washington's just got to win out and take care of itself. So. Yeah. Well, that's and and I and I I understand. See, I put out my predictions yesterday. And I was the only one that predicted that Oregon State would win. But here's the thing, guys. It's the history major in me. I can't deny it. It's who I am. It's not what I do. It's who I am. There's no team. And we're talking about we're ta- we're talking about teams that have made the playoff, guys. Washington's made the playoff. Oregon's made the playoff. No Pac-12 team has ever gone through a regular season in the Pac-12 unscathed. An, an entire, let's say, COVID, the COVID year doesn't count. An entire... Full schedule, unscathed. Everyone's had at least one loss. Well, Every- things things don't happen until they happen. So anyway. Well, that's that's true, <laughs> and it would be the irony of ironies if Washington was able to do it in the very last season of the Pac-12, right? That would be sad and ironic and everything else. But what's interesting, and it's absolutely possible. What's interesting is we take a look at what's going on on the playoff now, and then you look at next year. And I know I'm going to kind of go down a little bit different path, but we start taking a look at the coaching carousel with Boise State opening up, San Diego State opening up, and Oregon State and Washington State moving into the Mountain West probably. But when you talk about these other schools, there's going to be a school like Boise State, San Diego State, uh, Oregon State, or Washington State that makes the playoff in the expanded playoffs next year. I'm convinced that there will be. And when you talk about a guy like Ryan Grubb, possibly you know leaving to take one of those jobs do you take a higher end conference like a like a cal or a ucla where the road is going to be much more difficult to make the playoff or do you take a school like san diego state or boise state or oregon state where you can dominate like boise state has for years and have a really good shot of the playoff what do you think scott i mean if if you're ryan grubb what are you taking I, I mean, Boise State would be a great job for him to take. He probably won't, but he, I think that'd be a great place for him to land. How about um, San Diego State? Yeah, San Diego State, you can't, you can win there, yeah, and especially with the pool that he'd be able to pull from as as far as um, Southern Cal prospects and stuff like that. Yeah, brand, I, new, I, brand new stadium too. Yeah, so I I could see either one of those being being good places for him to land. So um, in addition to all the portal talk that's going to be going on with Washington and how they're 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 shaping their roster up and everything like that you know we're going to have to also keep an eye on you know the the coaching carousel because Kalen DeBoer's name is going to be brought up for a lot of a lot of jobs I think that um Ryan Grubb's name is going to be up for a lot of jobs and um you you could see some movement with some um other assistant coaches uh guys who might have the opportunity to go and be an OC somewhere and, you know, like Nick Sheridan, who wants to be an OC, Jamarcus Shepard, who wants to be an OC, those two guys, and Scott Huff wants to be an OC again. You got those three guys who'd like to move up, possibly, and Washington's only got one offensive coordinator position. So, you know, I mean, it's going to be real interesting to see what happens on the coaching front. Coaching carousel is going to be interesting this year with rumors of Chip Kelly uh, being let go. Um, I'm not sure we'll see any other movement in the Pac-12, but uh, I think we'll see some assistant coaches from Washington. I definitely think we'll see some changes on the coaching staff. But getting back to the original question, Chris, if you're a Ryan Grubb, if you've got an offer of UCLA, San Diego State, I don't I don't think San Diego US, UCLA would be a player for Ryan Grubb. But do you take a lower end school in a higher conference or a higher end school in a lower conference? What what do you think is a better job? Well, I think you have to figure out, first of all, what the landscape of this 12 team playoff is going to look like. Is there a potential like let's say more than one group of five school goes unbeaten. So like let's say this year. 
you you would have had like Liberty and you know I, James Madison's in a weird limbo type situation. But let's say let's say a Mountain West team next year like a Boise State or a San Diego State goes completely unbeaten, and then another one from back east goes unbeaten. Can you see a situation where two group of five schools ends up in the 12 team playoff? Because if you do, if you think that's a legitimate possibility, and you're not limiting yourself by dropping down into a non-power five conference, then that's absolutely something you have to consider because that's a, that's a big goal for all these guys to do. Yeah. So that, that's one thing to consider. The other thing to consider guys, and it's strictly financial, who's going to pay him because ultimately he would be taking a pay cut currently to become a head coach at one of these schools. Cause he's making $2 million right now. They're not going to pay him $2 million. Well, they're so going to have how- to bump. I think some of these schools realize they're going to have to bump up specifically a school like San Diego state with their new stadium. I agree. I agree. I think that's something that definitely is going to have to happen in order for them to get the guy that they want. But that also begs the question on their end, if you are going to start spending a lot more and going not so much above your means, but you're having to really extend your budget past where it's normally been, are you going to do that with the idea of taking a chance on a coordinator that's never been a head coach at that level before? Or are you going to try to find someone that's maybe even at a lower level like maybe a big sky head coach or someone, uh, uh, an FCS head coach. Like when um, I don't remember the Wyoming head coach, Bull, Bull, Coach Bull, he, you know, he was a, he was a head coach at, at, at a bunch of other schools like in Montana and, and, and other places. And then he, and he bumped up. But so it, it just depends on what you're looking at because the more you're going to spend, the more you're going to want that guarantee that a guy's going to have success and you don't yeah. want to necessarily take a chance on a, on a guy that, that is less proven, but right. could have a much, much higher ceiling. Well, the thing that people don't, you know, put in the front of their mind when they're talking about things like this is Ryan Grubb is the second highest paid uh, coordinator in the country at $2 million a year. And a lot of the schools that we're talking about, San Diego State or a uh, Boise State, they haven't paid their coaches that much. The guy at... Um, Avalos is only making a million and a half. I'm not sure what San Diego State is paying, but say if he was to look at San Diego State, he'd probably want minimum of three mil because if he makes two and a half, that's about a wash with what he's making because of the uh, state income tax where there's not a state income tax in the city of Seattle. But another thing to take into consideration is cost of living in Seattle is so high. It's so high, specifically the uh, housing up here in Seattle. So you can go to Boise State, like Jonathan Smith. What's he making? Four mil in Corvallis? He can live large down there on that. So that's just one of the things is uh, Ryan Grubb going to be in the running? Would he be able to get a job that would pay him three to four million dollars? Because a lot of the schools that you're talking about, again, like San Diego State and Boise State, they just don't pay that much. And I think San Diego State would be a school that might be willing to step up because, like I said, they've put a lot of money into the stadium. So if they spend an extra million dollars on a coach, it's more of an investment than an expense is the way I would look at that for a school like that. It true. And, and I think but the other thing you look at, look at the guy they just that they just blew out and Brady Hoke. Brady Hoke was a Big Ten head coach. He was coach of Michigan. I mean, he had head coaching experience. Are they going to go down that road again or are they going to take a chance on a, on a highly praised uh, coordinator? Because we've seen that in the past. We saw it with Jimmy Lake before the succession thing with Chris Peterson at Washington. There were there were teams that were really looking hard at him, like Colorado, like Arizona State. It's not unheard of that these teams will go out and try to find the hot coordinator. You look at Boise state with Avalos, he was a hot coordinator. So will they go down that road again, or will they try to find someone a little bit more proven? It's certainly a question you have to think about. And then on Washington's end, Kim, you're talking about the money that they're already paying for Ryan Grubb. We already know based on the conversations that, that we've had with Kalen DeBoer, he's intimated that him and Troy Dan and they're in discussions. There's, it certainly seems like another extensions in the works, do you continue? Do you continue to extend Ryan Grubb? Do you continue to pay him more money? Hey, Chris, you've taken a look at the contracts. I haven't taken a look in a while. I know Ryan Grubb's got a buyout. Do you remember what it is? I haven't looked at it. I haven't looked in a while, but I, I can't imagine it's severe at all. I mean that, you know, buyouts for coordinators. Yeah, no, nah, it's it's not something that's even worth managing. It's it's the head coach that always have the massive buyouts. And as we've seen with what's going on at Texas A&M with Jimbo Fisher, I mean, why do I get the you, feeling if you get stuck behind a bad contract, it's nasty. 
I get the feeling that it's a million bucks for grub. I could be wrong, but we'll have to take another look. We've got a copy of it, so uh, we'll take a look. The other thing on Kalen DeBoer's extension, just keep in mind, uh, Ryan Grubb and Kalen DeBoer both have the same agent, Jimmy Sexton. Um, and many have compared Jimmy Sexton as a college agent to Scott Boris as a <laughs> baseball agent. So um, I think well, Kalen. Ryan Grubb was asked this week about it, guys. He was asked this week, and he gave a real pat answer in the sense that he's got guys in his corner, and he's referring specifically to Sexton in, in, in terms of guys that, that are there specifically to deal with these types of questions because that allows him to just have to coach and yeah. game plan. So, you know, clearly he's got guys behind the scenes, but I think one of the questions you have to ask, you have to ask him, and this is a question I think you've asked before, is just how much is a guy like Sexton going to push Ryan Grubb to take a head coaching position? How much influence is he going to have over this eventual decision to stay or go? Well, just an FYI, just, you know, what I understand about Kalen's last extension, um, what's he at, four, four point something this year? four, yeah. Yeah, from my understanding, the base could have been higher, but his agent was pushing for more guaranteed. So um, that's interesting that he he could have had his base higher, but uh, the agent was pushing for more guaranteed. So we'll see how that plays out. But and we should also, Kim, we should also remind people that he has those he has those longevity uh, bonuses in there as well that he negotiated with Jen Cohen in terms of if he stays like two more years, he gets like. 500,000 or if he yeah. stays an additional two years, he gets another million. And these, these things all get set aside. And so, yeah, the, I mean, he's got reasons to stay above and beyond the financial stuff yeah. because we've already talked about his family, his yep. daughter, Alexis, just signing a, a deal to, to play softball at Washington. He's got a lot of incentives to stay. Well, from my understanding, the medium coach's salary in the Big Ten is 6.9. That's a medium in the um, Big Ten. I don't know if that includes Mel Tucker's ridiculous contract or not, but the number I'm hearing that they need to be at for Kalen is eight. So uh, we'll see what happens. I but. think I think they I think they could get there, Kim. Eventually, I don't think I don't think they double his salary next year. Yeah. I, I just don't think that's tenable. I don't think that's something that would be a reasonable in the budget. But could I see him? I was asked about this on Sirius this, this week about it, and I really think they could they could stair step this thing so that maybe he gets six next year, and then maybe eight the the following year. I mean, I could yeah. see a progression where that makes sense. Scott, moving forward, you had a chance to talk to coaches on Wednesday. Um, did you learn anything from the press conference on Monday or coaches on Wednesday? Well, the big one on Wednesday was from uh, Jamarcus Shepard, and he said um, that he hopes that the Oregon State fans are as vicious as anyone they've ever been, you know, traveled to. He hopes they talk bad about their moms, their girlfriends. He hopes uh, they they just they come at him and give him as much business as possible because he said they did that to us at Michigan State and our guys came out and just it, it, it elevated our play. And he said we don't need that, but if they're going to bring that to us, then we're going to we're going to feed off of it. And so that that was kind of interesting to hear that. And I've uh, posted that story. I posted that yesterday. Um, and then uh, Juice Brown, actually, uh, I talked to him for a little bit on Wednesday as well. And he talked about how I and I, I I would have to go back. I didn't actually go back and watch the Utah game. But he said there was a nine play sequence where they gave up three touchdowns. And he said, if we can eliminate the breakdowns that we had in those nine plays, he goes, we were we started off fast, got two, three and outs. Uh, second half, we played really well. It was those nine snaps uh, that really caused us some problems. So that was a big thing. Um, you know, uh, Josh, our intern, talked to uh, Eric Schmidt and Scott Huff. Eric Schmidt was talking about the um, return, the coverage units. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. He just talked about how they have like this huge mindset of just we're going to go down and make plays. Guys are really competing with each other. And he brought up the point that he doesn't believe, and I was trying to recall myself, that Washington has given up a yard on um, – punt returns and he said our and that's all due to our coverage units and the hang time and and the way jack McAllister is putting the ball in, in the right spots when they want him to put it there so uh that was interesting and then um on 
on Monday. Not I didn't get I didn't glean a lot from what what they had going on. It sounds like they just have a ton of respect for um uh you know the the what Oregon State is doing and and Jonathan Smith and his staff and everything like that and um you know that they they know they've got a tough game ahead of them uh today. Um, just real quick too, just um, Jonathan Smith on with Softy this week took a little bit of a fun shot at uh, Coach Scott Huff. You, did you hear that? Yeah, he basically just said that he really questioned um, the move by uh, Kalen DeBoer and keeping Scott Huff on the staff. So, <laughs> and those two go way back. Yep, way yep. back. Yeah. So. Uh, so we didn't get uh, the part. I, someone asked him about it, and and um, the, it was kind of all off the record. Uh, but you know, Huff was just like, yeah, he goes, I, I, I texted him right after, or no, he texted me right after and said, you should listen to Softy's show. So, so, um, yeah, it that sounds was all like good fun. Yeah, it was all in good fun there. Those two are really good friends and, um, they, they really enjoy each other. Chris, you had a chance to talk to some players. I know you talked to Devin Culp. I think you talked to Roger Rosengarten as well. I had a chance to talk to Alfonso Tupatala, but, uh, what'd you learn this week from the interviews that we did? I talked to Devin Culp, talked to Roma Dunze. Um, I believe you talked to Roger and, and Zoe. Um, I would say real quick, I, I was looking up the, the punt return defense stats, uh, Scott, since you brought them up. Washington's number two in the country. They've, they've been credited with four opposition punt returns for a total of negative two yards. So yeah. number That's two pretty- behind Louisiana. <laughs> who has apparently given up negative 10 yards on six punts. So who's that on? Did you give credit to the punt return team in the coverage or Jack McAllister or what? All 50, the above. 25, all the above. 70? A, 25, I mean, Schmidt, Schmidt basically said it all works together because Jack McAllister has to put it where they want him to put it. And then the coverage units have to get down and make the play. Yeah. So, yeah. What'd you learn this week, Chris? Just that uh, I think that's just one of those things where they're working through things and, and obviously, it's just one game at a time. And, you know, talking to Devin was, was really interesting because he just, you know, I think he just understands. I think he's been through enough of these games where it's just you, you just have to focus on what's going on in that week in time. I mean, you can't really look past, you know, to the bigger pictures. We've talked about all the national controversies with should Washington be fourth or fifth or all that stuff. And you bring that up to these guys and it's just like you might as well be it's like. It's like trying to teach a dog a, a card trick. You know, they just don't – they're not there. They're not talking about that stuff. They're just not not invested in it at all. And so talking to him was great, just kind of getting the general tone of, of how the, the, co- the, the players are approaching this stuff. Definitely didn't hear anything about disrespect at all. I don't – I didn't get a sense that the players feel disrespected um, in terms of this national stuff because, frankly, I don't think they really listen to it all that much. And I think this is more – the coaches trying to feed that into them to get them motivated. Hey, which, Chris, you say that, but you heard Kirk Curb Street yesterday. Well, and I was gonna, I was gonna bring that up. So this week, um, obviously, all the when ESPN and ABC and those guys they do their national thing. So for people that don't know, today, uh, Kirk Curb Street, Chris Fowler are gonna be calling the game live from Corvallis, and so every week they do, uh, they have a call in with both teams. So with some of their players, so they were talking to Michael Panix. I don't really remember who else they may have been talking to, but I would have assumed a guy like Roma Dunze, maybe like Eddie Lafoccio, um, some of those guys. And yeah, just to, to talk about what you said, Kim, I mean, they were able to get out of Penix eventually, as, as Herb Street said, they had to kind of pull it out of him that they are feeling a little disrespected about all that stuff and that the players understand that they get it. They hear it. Herb street said, he goes, it's amazing what kids will glom onto in terms of motivation, because look at what George has done. Look at what Kirby smart has done. They talk about that. That's like a, that's like an open subject for them. They, they use this stuff as disrespect. And all these people are like, you're the number one team in the country. How can you feel disrespected? See, these guys will find anything they can to try to stick it in as a little needle to get these kids going. So like Jamarcus Shepard said and, and Scott said that 
you know, they don't need that as motivation, but will they use it? They'll use yep. everything and anything they can possibly use to motivate themselves. Yep. Also had a chance to talk to Alfonso Tupatala, and he talked, uh, you know, quite a bit about his uh, fumble pre going into the goal line. And, you know, just really happy for a kid like Alfonso, because not winning that game, if they'd lost that game, that would have been something that defined him for a long, long time. And you know, anybody that knows him knows he's a good kid. And just to have to, you know, live the rest of your life with that uh on you, you know, is just, that would have been really, really hard for a kid like him. So, um, you know, he, he got through it he got teammates and, you know, he got out, back out on the field. It was a key guy in the end of the Utah uh, game. So, um, it was good to finally get that monkey off of his back. And I'm sure it'll come up once in a while, but it won't have anywhere near the amount of impact if they'd lost that game. We need to jump into this game uh, coming up today, which uh, number 11 versus number five in the country is a huge game for both teams. And I think the focus on the game for most people has been uh, Oregon State's offense with their uh, two-headed monster running attack and their 250-pound quarterback, where the weather today is expected to be windy and rainy and not great, but uh, Oregon State expected to keep the ball on the ground, Scott. They absolutely will, and they absolutely should. Until Washington proves they they can't stop the run, uh, Oregon State's going to run it right at them. And uh, Damian Martinez is one of the best running backs in the country, uh, has over 1,000 yards, seven touchdowns. Deshaun Fenwick, uh, he's essentially the backup, but, I mean, he's got almost 500 yards and five touchdowns on the ground. Uh, DJ Uyangalele uh, has rushed for 153 and six touchdowns of his own. So once they get in that red zone, the Huskies are really going to have to, you know, tighten things up both on coverage, but also make sure that they've got their eye on Uyangalele because not only will he be able to throw the ball in you a little bit, um, he'll he'll take off and run. And it, like you said, Kim, at 250 pounds, he's going to he's going to hurt some people in that secondary. Uh, they've also got a huge offensive line. Their right tackle is expected. He's a, Some are listing him as a top 10 draft pick, but their offensive line and uh, led by their offensive line coach, former University of Washington offensive line coach for two days, <laughs> Chuck Mahalchik, Jim Mahalchik. Jim Mahalchik, yep. Yeah, Sark hired him, and he was here for about two days. I don't even know if he unpacked, and then he got an offer from, from the Raiders and took off, but he was here all the two days. But he's widely regarded as one of the best offensive line coaches in the country, and he's done a real good job down there. Yeah, it's yeah. the it's the the, the the right tackle is is the guy that's the name, the uh, Talis Fuanga. He's really, really, really good. I mean, six six, three thirty. I mean, you know, I'm thinking he's he's basically a kind of a Caleb McGarry clone, like a longtime starter, just a real dominant force um at that position. They're gonna it's it's a little they're a little banged up at center. I know that um, you know, talking to the Oregon State guys this week, like Jake Levengood, it's like could he be hit and miss. I know, I think Jonathan Smith even mentioned one of the backup guards, Stark, Grant Stark, he, you know, he may not be available today. So we'll see what happens with that. So they're a little banged up and they may have some guys inside that they're going to have to move around. Very, very similar guys to what Washington had to do early in the season. So What's they're, they're dealing with some of that stuff too. Yeah. What's interesting, Scott, is some of the wide receivers that have given the Washington defense fits have been those larger guys where they've just posted them up. But Oregon State for a long time has never really had the big guys. They got the little guys. Yeah, but they're fast. They're really fast. And that was one thing I talked to Juice Brown about uh, over the, you know, during the week. And and he basically said, hey, they're going to they're going to show you a lot of different stuff. And we've, we've got to really recognize formations and what they like to do out of them. He said, we've schooled these guys. They know what they're doing. But he says, you know, once they get in that game, you know, they, they need that eye discipline. And, and you know, he what he likes is that he's like, I, you know, I've got some guys with some size. You know, Jabbar Muhammad isn't that guy. But, you know, Elijah Muhammad or Elijah, um, Elijah Jackson. Uh, Elijah Jackson and uh, Thaddeus Dixon and JV on green. Those guys all are over six feet tall and have long arms and they're big physical guys. So that'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, if Washington can get their hands on these guys, they're not going to give them free releases, but then what does Oregon state do to, to adjust to that? Do they have their guys set off of the line? 
Do they send their guys in motion? What do they have them coming out of the backfield? There's a lot of different ways that, that that someone like Jonathan Smith can scheme that and make sure that he gets his guys open and free releases. And if they get free releases, these guys can run right by you. You can be running a full sprint and these guys will run right by you. I mean, these, these guys are really, really fast and they're talented. Their best wide receiver is Anthony Gould. Um, you know, he's the deep, deep guy. He's uh, 33 receptions, 599 yards and two touchdowns. Silas Bolden, he was a guy that Washington actually was looking at a few years ago. 42 receptions, 598 yards and four touchdowns. So, um, you know, and then they've got Jack Velling, the, t- the tight end from I think he's from Bothell, Bothell High School. Seattle, and, Seattle, Seattle Prep. Oh, Seattle Prep. That's right. That's right. So um, but he you know, he's. 27 uh, receptions for 418 yards, but he's got the most touchdowns and he's a real red zone threat. He's got eight touchdowns. So they, they can hit you in a lot of different ways for, by a lot of different guys. Josiah Irish. I couldn't believe he was still playing. You know, it seems like he's like probably in his early thirties. I mean, he came from Mount Si. Did he, he play played, with Westover? He played with Westover. He also played with uh, Kale Millen. And um, so, uh, you know, I, I was shocked when I saw that he was still around. I thought he was gone. Um, he's He was known as more of a track guy than a wide receiver, but he's turned into a, to a pretty valuable wide receiver for Oregon State in their offense. Hey, Scott, Chris, can, you, can you remind me real quick? Did Washington, did, did um, when Sheridan and all those guys got hired, I know it was too late, and that's why Velling ended up signing with Oregon State, but did they come back and offer him late? I don't know if they offered i don't i want to say they they were talking to him or I, I think they did actually offer him they he was one of the guys they offered but it was so late in the process that he just decided to leave but um he, yeah my he recollection was, what yeah. my recollection was is that they they really really liked him and they would have wanted him to stay but they again mm-hmm. got in late because they weren't you know they yeah i think they scout i think they scouted him when when they were at uh when they were at um fresno, uh, fresno state yeah so <laughs> Hey, hey, Chris, I think the the uh, key to this defense with Washington going against Oregon State, especially with their vaunted running game, is the return of Tuli Latula Gasanoa. And I kind of equate it to the same thing with Julius Bulo came back his first day game. I don't think he was 100%, but his second game that he came back, he looked like he was full born, looked like a totally different player. I'm thinking we may see the same today with Tuli. Yeah, I think I think a, a real interesting battle is going to be in those third and shorts, fourth, fourth and shorts you know, third and three or less, fourth and three or less, when I think uh, DJ Uyangalele will, he'll become a, a running threat. Because remember, in, in Jonathan Smith's offense, and, and you can even go back earlier than this with Oregon State, you know, I even go back to, to the games where, remember, Ryan Nall, kind of that really big, big running back that they would run in power situations. And then the last few years, they had the guy that was the linebacker that would that would kind of be in a quarterback, but he was just a running guy and he'd be like a third down short yardage goal line type guy. I, I'm really wondering if uh, DJ Uyangalele, you know, 250 pounds, as you mentioned, Kim, right off the bat, you know, I wonder if he's going to be that kind of, you know, third down short yardage goal line type guy where basically he just gets it and wildcats it and just takes it and yep. does whatever he needs to do to get his two, three yards. Cause he's only, a- he's averaging less than three yards a carry, but he's carried the ball well, like 55 times. So it's not like he isn't, a, can be a little bit of a threat. He's not going to go the distance or anything. I think his long run this year is about 25, 26 yards. But, um, you know, I think that battle inside with having Thule in there, having, um, you know, MJ Ale and having uh, Tuatele and uh, Jacob Bandis in there. I think those four guys trying to battle the interior of Oregon State's line and it being a little banged up, that could be a huge thing to be able to try to get off the field because that was one of the keys, guys, against against Utah, is that they were able to get off the field in third and fourth down situations where they haven't necessarily done that consistently this year. Hey, Scott, when you take a look at the other side of the ball, when you take a look at uh, Oregon State's defense, it looks like they've got a pretty good front seven. Their back end is a little bit suspect, but starting to play uh, play a lot better. But I kind of get the feeling that uh, this offense, and uh, you can see it in my prediction, I think they're going to put the pedal to the metal. I think they're going to open it all up. It's going to be all gas and no brakes, and they're seeing the style points matter. And uh, I I think it's going to be a real interesting offense versus defensive game. Yeah, it absolutely will be. And, and uh, you know, Oregon State, I think, is second in the conference in total sacks. They're 30, they have 36 on the season. 
far cry from what Washington's put up so far. So um, Andrew Chatfield is the is the big sack artist for them. Nine sacks on the season so far. Um, but the guy the guy who really he's kind of the engine that makes that thing go up front for um, who who's the uh, guy who signed with was it Alabama or where, where did he go the one that left. Um, oh, you're talking about Spates? He went yeah, to LSU. Spates. Spates. Yeah, Spates. LSU. That's right. That's yeah. where he went. So he goes to LSU, and I'm like, man, they lost an integral part, and that is definitely true. But Easton Mascarenas Arnold, that guy, that guy can play. That guy flies all over the place. He's got 88 tackles on the season. He is all over the place. I've watched a lot of his tape. I've watched a lot of Oregon State games this year. He stands out. He is a difference maker for them. He's a leader. And that's a guy who um, Washington is definitely going to have to keep in check a little bit. Maybe not let him get 10, 10 tackles. Because if he's getting 10 tackles, that means Washington isn't getting it done up front so that they can get to that second level. Huskies definitely recruited him out of high school for sure. I yeah. remember his name specifically. Yeah. And, and Scott, you know, you take a look at this Oregon State defense, and what I go back to is I take a look at that Utah defense, which was, what, top 10 in the country, as good as the Utah defense was, and Washington was able to move the ball against them. I think Utah's a better defense than Oregon State, so I don't think Washington's going to have as much trouble as a lot of people think. And a lot of people are saying, you know, talking about this running game with Oregon State, I, I don't think they're giving the Washington offense enough credit. Well, you know, we'll see. We'll we'll definitely see. Washington's been able to run the ball a lot better. Ryan Grubb attributed that to them practicing a little bit better with a little bit more urgency. Scott Huff said kind of the same thing. And uh, he they, they both like what they've seen, but uh, these guys are – you know, they've got to prove it every week. You know, you do it one week. Great. What have you done for me lately? Are you going to are you going to get it done this week? You can't just rest on your laurels. And I don't think they are. I'm just saying, you know, just because it was done against Utah at home uh, doesn't mean that it's going to get done against Oregon on the road. One more thing that I think is key, Oregon Scott. State, um, by the way. One of the things I think is key too is Washington's healthy. Um, we saw Jalen McMillan do mm-hmm. a little bit last week. We'll probably see a little bit more of him today. I don't know how effective he will be today, but the way Jeremy Bernard has stepped up, and we'll see if um, Giles Jackson plays and uh, uh, Denzel Boston. But they're healthy. Yeah, I think Giles Jackson plays this week. Doesn't play next week, and then plays in the, the conference game. title game and yeah. the bowl, bowl game. Um, and then that way he can still save his red shirt because I think he wants to come back. I, I do. I think he it, it, if all things being equal, if there's a way he can red shirt and not burn a year of eligibility as a backup player for Washington, I think that's what he'd prefer to do. But, um, you know, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. Um, I, I I think Washington. The one thing about Washington, if if with Jalen McMillan healthy, Romo Dunze, Jalen Polk, these guys are all NFL wide receivers playing college football right now. All these guys could have gone pro and would and should be pro on some pro roster at this point. But they're here at the University of Washington. And, and I was talking with, uh, you know, somebody who, you know, know, knows a lot of football. He's followed a lot of football, same age as I am, been watching football just as long as I have. And, and we both agreed that nobody can – if Washington's healthy – at the wide receiver group, there's no one who can stop Washington's passing attack because there's no way you can D up three guys like that. Hey, I don't know if either one of you know the answer to this, but uh, say the Pac-12 championship game and uh, when you start getting into the playoffs, do those games count towards they your eligibility? Not. They do not. No, okay. Brian, Brian Grubb addressed that this week. All right. so, yeah, it's just regular season, four games in regular season. All right, Chris, and this running game with, um, excuse me, this defense with Oregon State versus this Washington offense, give me an idea of what you expect. Well, I think we talked about it a little bit earlier. I mean, Scott mentioned Andrew Chaffield. I mean, he's basically Oregon State's version of Ellis for Utah. And Washington did a great job of neutralizing Ellis, who has much bigger sack numbers and tackle for loss numbers than Chaffield does. So, but but they but Oregon State's done a great job of kind of collectively getting the job done because it may be a guy here, a guy there. They might be you know blitzing some guys, bringing some guys off the edge and things like that. But I don't think there's any question the matchup of Oregon State's edges and defensive ends and whatnot against Washington's tackles. These will be the best tackles that they've seen all year, and I don't think it'll be close because one of the things that Washington fans have been talking about, and rightly so is what is Oregon State's quality win? What is their signature win? Do they really even have one yet? Well, it's a good question because I can't really think of one. 
But at the same time, they've taken care of business. They did get the unfortunate situation of um, having to play Arizona once Arizona kind of found itself under Noah Fafita, whereas Washington was able to get there when Noah Fafita was playing his very, very first game as a starter. So sometimes, you know, luck really factors into a lot of these different things. Well, I fully expect Washington, you know, you mentioned the weather, Kim, you know, it, it looks like five to 10 mile an hour winds, 100 percent chance of rain. Um, we know that's Husky weather, but that's also Beaver weather. That's that's weather that all the teams in the Northwest are very much used to. So I think that will probably neutralize itself a little bit. Again, Dylan Johnson running the ball, giving them some semblance so they can play action off of that and a lot, use a lot more of their motions and shifts to kind of create some situations and some some opportunities for guys like, you know, Devin Culp, guys like Jack Westover to get open in, into some situations and to figure out how to move that ball, that that's going to be the key. That's ultimately going to be the key yep. because I think that's, you know, when it comes down to it, you know, Washington has made their hay on explosives, but in those types of situations, they're probably going to have to figure out a little bit more to manufacture things. And that's really what they have to do anyways, because ball control, game control is what this game's going to come down to. Let's go ahead and wrap this up. Um, I've got to head down to Corvallis. So, uh, Scott Eklund, wrap it up for us. Well, uh, Washington needs to get it done. They just absolutely need to get it done. In my prediction, I said that I felt you could make a good argument either way for either one of these teams to win. My gut for a long time said it was going to be Oregon State. Uh, I even mentioned it in our postgame podcast uh, last week against Utah. Uh, but there's just something about it. If, if Jalen McMillan's healthy, I think Washington's got a little bit of a chip on their shoulder. I think the coaches, um, are using the underdog status, uh, you know, to, to help, uh, juice these guys up a little bit. And I think Washington's going to come out and play. They got to stop the run. They got to get, uh, DJ Uyangalele in third and long situations. He'll spray the ball around a little bit. He'll make some questionable decisions. And then Washington needs to take advantage of those. I'd really like to see Washington get out to an early lead and then just put the pressure on because the more pressure that gets put on Uyangalele, the more the more chance Washington has a chance of just running away with this game. Chris Fetters, wrap it up. Yeah, this is uh, this is going to be a really, really interesting game today because, again, first time that both teams have been ranked top 12 in the country, first time ever for Oregon State and Washington playing together. Both of these games, the last two season guys, for people that don't remember, won basically at the death on field goals. The one in Corvallis was won by Oregon State. The one in Seattle was won by Washington. Basically last play of the game for both games. So would it come down to the last play? I think it very well could. It just has that kind of feel about it. But I think ultimately, when you're talking about a top 12 matchup, we're talking about all of the normal key points. Who has the ball? Who who has game control? Who wins the turnover battle? Who wins the field position battle? Who wins the battle of getting the explosive plays and the sudden change plays when you need it? All of those things are going to come down to it. I know I picked Washington to lose this game. They can very easily win this game. And I know the national perspective has been, oh, well, eventually all this stuff is going to catch up to Washington because they haven't been winning convincingly enough. I don't buy that in the least. I think it's total garbage. If Oregon State wins this game, it's because they're going to win it. It's not because Oregon, it's not because Washington's going to lose it. It's not because Washington's going to hand it to them. It's because Oregon State would have ball controlled it. They would have been able to win the turnover battle. They would have won the field position battle. They would have limited Washington's opportunities on offense to get explosive. And I think they win something in special teams, like a pump block like it was at USC or a kick block like it was against Utah. Something like that could happen to change the game. So, I, But I do I think it's going to be exciting? I think it's going to be unbelievable. I think the atmosphere is going to be incredible. I, I'm kind of envying you a little bit, Kim, being down there later today seeing that whole thing with the new stadium. And I know it's only 35,000 and I know Washington fans can't wrap their heads around the idea that 35,000 fans making that much noise to attract the game, but they're going to make a difference. That Oregon state crowd is going to make a difference. Don't even delude yourself into thinking otherwise, because that place is going to be electric. And you started the podcast today with the chainsaw. You might as well end it with the chainsaw because that's all you're going to hear today. Washington fans is you're going to hear the chainsaw. I hate to tell you, but that's just the way it is because that's how they play it down there in Benton County. That's just what they do. 
Well, at the end of the day, you take a look at Oregon State's schedule. They lost to Arizona and they lost to Washington State. The other thing is taking a look at the rosters. Washington has a better roster. When you take a look at the number of NFL players that Oregon State has and you take a look at how many NFL players Washington has on their roster that are going to be seeing the field today, it's not even close. Starting with Michael Penix and then you've got the two tackles in Fautanu and Rosengarden who are definitely going to be playing on Sundays and possibly even Parker Brailsford at center. He needs to bulk up a little bit, but they've got four wide receivers that I think will be in the NFL. They've got uh, defensive ends and Braylon Trice and uh, ZTF, who is going to be NFL players, and Eddie Ulafosio, uh, and then Carson Bruner at um, at a linebacker, who I also think has got a shot at the NFL. But you take a look at the rosters, and I think that the talent, it's not even close. Oregon State has a couple, but Washington uh, has a lot. Um, the other thing is Washington has something to play for. And I think that's a lot of the time when you get into the middle of the season, it kind of gets to be a drag with Arizona State and Stanford. The team was decimated with the flu. And as Michael Penix said, they're hearing what's being said. They're definitely hearing what's being said. And I think that they're motivated because they not only have uh, this thing with the respect, which I think is a little bit overrated, but I think the biggest thing is they know what's in front of them. It's a championship run. And Kalen DeBoer, I say this every week, he's had undefeated season. He has had um, national championships. He has the blueprints. He has done this before. And he's even said that this team has a lot of characteristics as the uh, teams that he had that won championships. So, um, I think that uh, I think this is not going to be a close game. I think Washington goes full out, all all gas, no breaks. They keep the pedal on the metal. They know the style points are important because they've been told that it's important. So they're going to go out and prove it. And I just think Washington wins in a game that's going to be a lot easier than people think. I think they'll have control of the game. Of course, Oregon State's going to store, score some points, but uh I think we're going to see a different Michael Penix today, and I think we're going to see Romo Dunsey, and uh, we'll see if Rome gets beat up and held as much, and Braylon Trice gets held as much as they have in the past couple of weeks. So I think it's going to be an interesting game. And no, I'm not going to play the chainsaw. I'm going to hear enough of it this afternoon. So, hey, Kim, uh, real quick, yeah. though, real quick. I, if you think Michael Penix has the game that you just predicted, yep. does that mean he wins the Heisman? Because yeah, if you I win by three touchdowns over a top 12 team on the road, that should be a Heisman-defining moment. I think he's going 400 plus yards today. I really do. I, I I just really feel confident about this offense going in there. I think that they've got the focus and I think that they've got the mindset and I think that's huge. And I, I just think that, uh, you know, all the talk about Oregon State, and especially with Oregon State being favored, they got something to play for. So it's going to be a wild game and just uh, we got you covered. It's going to be another late night down in Corvallis and we've got you covered here at dogman.com. So for all of us at dogman.com, I'm Kim Grinalds along with Chris Fetters and Scott Eklund. Go dogs. 